0: Welcome to Talking Health Tech, my name is Peter Birch and this is a podcast of conversations with doctors, developers and decision makers that are playing in the Australian health tech scene today. Here with me today is Matu Bush. Matu's both a clinician and a designer who founded One Good Street, a social impact platform to encourage neighbour-initiated care for older residents at risk of social isolation and loneliness. Matu's the Deputy Director for the Health Transformation Lab at RMIT designing cultures of innovation and creativity in healthcare. He has a master's degree in public health and broad clinical experience as an emergency oncology and intensive care nurse. And he's also a sexual health nurse practitioner. He's a board member of better care Victoria and the emerging clinical advisory committee. He's a super active member of Heiser, a Rotarian, a mentor for undergraduates and postgraduate students, and he's here sitting in front of me now. Matu, thanks so much for joining.
1: Pleasure. When you read that out, I sound exhausting.
0: <laughs> it's comprehensive and it's, and it's well learned and it's exciting to have you in front of me. I've actually, you've come here after going to a an event. I saw you at an event a couple of months ago now, and it's taken this long to get you into the studio. So Good to be here. Thanks for, for coming in. Look, we, we've got so much to cover as well, but look, we'll start start... start with something that that I first heard about when I saw you talk, which was about the concept of neighbour-initiated care. Uh, Tell us more a bit about that platform that you founded, The One Good Street, and and why it exists.
1: Sure. So there's a GP who lives on my street. He's retired. He's 84. And when he falls out of bed, I go and pick him up. And that act of neighbour-initiated care saves an ambulance fee, as well as an ambulance trip, as well as an admission into ED. And for someone who's 84, often they are triaged as a category three or four. So he probably deteriorates and doesn't have a tea or any food or anything, fluids, whilst he's there. Because EDs can be quite ageist. So for an 84-year-old, that's a pretty scary experience. So that act of his daughter calling me and me going to do that, I reckon we save around $3,000 for the state budget in healthcare. It also helps the ED uh meet their four hour target which is important Mm. because they want to get people in and out with four hours such a simple thing to do as well and i I do it joyfully because what it does it lifts the street capital the social capital in my street my street's a great street to live in yeah that impacts property prices when new people move in they're like gee everyone's so friendly and everyone helps each other out so there's this there's an alternate kind of value economy happening when you do those sorts of things And so I started to talk about that, and more and more people would say, yeah, I do the same thing. So I developed a platform that enables people who want to do great things for older people in their neighbourhood for that to occur, and that's called One Good Street.
0: Wow. that's What about Health Transformation Lab? What what, what does that do?
1: Yeah, so we're a newly formed lab that's uh, anchor-funded by Cisco. And it's part of RMIT's new vision of how to integrate with society and industry, and industry partnership. And so we're pretty radical. We'd call ourselves anti-disciplinary. Okay. So so leave your specialization and and come on a creative journey with creative bravery and creative leadership as we attack and approach and tease apart and grapple with. The thorniest and most wicked problems in healthcare. Mm. So, we're all hybrids. We're either a clinician plus something else. So, I'm a clinician designer. We've got an architect who's become an anthropologist, who's become a project worker in human centered design, an indigenous consultant, and now works for us. We've got <laughs> immunologists that are expertise in loneliness and isolation. So, if yeah. you're a hybrid and you don't fit in anywhere else, you fit in in the lab because we actively seek a neurodiverse group where contestability is the hallmark. We don't want echo chambers. And so people come to us with healthcare problems. A hospital might come and say, we've got a problem with uh, discharge planning and getting letters to GPs. And we'll tease that apart and map the ecosystem of the problem, and then suggest very radical solutions to that. Looking at the latent capacity that exists in our neighbourhoods. So for example, thinking about discharging to rotary Right, so that an eighty-four-year-old's discharge automatically a letter goes to GP, but it also goes to the local rotary. Right. Okay. So they're there to catch them, make sure there's food in the fridge, make sure they they take their meds, that they get to their outpatient appointments. These are ways that we can tap into this network of support, because in healthcare we see people in tertiary hospitals, we discharge them, and if we discharge them to nothingness, loneliness, isolation, no supports, no family. There's no return on investment. We're immediately failing and they'll end up back in. So that's the kind of solutions we bring. We think about, we use a cybernetics lens, which is really kind of radical, which I'll go through in a minute. We also think about salutogenic design. When we're designing technologies, uh, we don't want to make stuff that's beautifully useless. Yeah, okay. There's plenty of beautifully useless tech out there. Yes. That quantifies everything about you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Useless. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully useless. I can think of a few different examples of that. But yeah. salutinic so, so, design. Yep. That's a cool name for something yep. that I don't know. So I'm going to have to get
1: you to tell me. <laughs> Good. Based on the Italian root word for a saluto or saluto is health. Okay. Genic is generation or uh, the genesis of, the beginnings of. And it's all about design that focuses on reducing your stress levels and promoting your well being. So it's kind of anti, you know, it stands opposed to the, path, uh, the pathologizing of your humanity when you walk into a hospital. So a salutogenic design will focus on designing towards things and services and processes that help you manage your condition better, make it more comprehensible so you understand what's going on, and also make it meaningful for you. And that can be from built form, interior design, lighting, collateral development, Wearable sensors, technology, AI, machine learning, system design, even comms design with how your staff talk, uh, admin staff, for example, talk to patients. It can be wayfinding. Everything we do should be increasing a patient's manageability of their condition. Can we make this more manageable for them? Can we make it more comprehensible? The, the letters they receive are clear. They can understand what they're doing there in that outpatient department. And we invite meaning. How do they feel in that moment? And that, I think, delivers a much better patient experience.
0: So at the labs, some of those... Are there, are there Have there been solutions that, you, like an example of a solution that you can talk about? So something that has come out of it. So two questions then. What does it look like when it goes into the, like, you know, a, a problem comes in, do, do people just draw on a whiteboard?
1: And then, like, what, what's been some of the outcomes and the benefits of that? So, for example, a cancer hospital came in and said, hey, we want to build some kind of curriculum or university or school where people can learn about cancer. Yeah, okay. And we took that problem and we we teased it apart and, and on reflection, we were able to demonstrate that people want to spend as little time as possible learning about their cancer because cancer is a thief for them, just robs them of everything. So the last thing we want to do is allow cancer to rob more time for someone who's got a time-limited illness. So we worked on a something called guerrilla information provision that is using a whole lot of nudge theory where you can inform and teach people about a health condition but in the peripheries and that can be with augmented reality, it can be with fridge magnets, it can be with decks of cards, it can be a whole range of other ways that subtly inform people that it's always at the periphery and when they need it they can grab it but it's not forcing into them a whole lot of uh, collateral around cancer. And that's uh, what came out with a whole lot of students who have developed all these great little prototypes of board games which build health literacy but not intentionally doing so, of using augmented reality that that allows you to observe from a really high level your entire cancer journey Mm -hmm. but you don't have to engage with any of it. You can just marvel at how beautiful and how cool it is and share it with family and friends and say, hey, check this out. Mm -hmm. In doing so, you're exposing people to a range of things and you can nudge them in the direction of that. That's one example. Health, citizen-driven science is another one. So, for example, in the UK, they have trained normal everyday people to look at mammograms and detect cancer, okay? And they get like 96% accuracy after a while. Yeah, so it gives you an idea of when someone comes to us and says, hey, we've got a problem, we'll look at it in different lenses. Yes. We'll And for example, a provider came and said, well, help us understand citizen science. How do we get citizens to help us out? And then we're able to expose them to a range of things. For example, there is a great company in Melbourne called Transpire who've developed an app where you can donate your phone data or phone processing overnight and it runs computations from cancer research overnight. And in doing so, they reduce the overall time of producing the data that's required for the research. Hmm. So latent capacity, the other Mm -hmm. sorts of things that we expose people to and provoke, these are provocations to the sector. So you might come in and say, hey, I've, here's our problem and we might take you to a completely different destination and more likely with a really unusual partnership where you didn't think of. Yeah, yeah. So for example, we might say Australia Post is going to be the best person to partner in loneliness and isolation okay. because who visits your house every day? Yeah, yeah. In all around Australia, there's nice. there's this capability. That's what we're doing. We're grafting in the solutions because the solutions aren't with those that are the problem custodians. Mm-hmm. And most healthcare try and solve their own problems. Yes. And they marinate in it for years and years. And if you've been to enough health conferences in your time, mm-hmm. you will hear the same stuff repeated over and over again. <laughs> so that's what we do. Come into the lab. They tell us their problem. We've got something called the treatment. Okay, And the treatment is our design methodology. And it's really unusual. We do a lot of anthropology, deep hanging out. That's how we found out about why it's so difficult to – you should never give a cancer patient any more to read because yeah. we've, we mapped a lady who was 84, and in her home she had 186 pages worth of patient information she had yeah. to get through. <laughs> and we knew that whatever you do, whatever you design, you can't make that pile. So we use anthropology, deep hanging out. It's where you shut up and just watch. Uh, We also use a Jesuit reasoning method called causatory, where you descend into the particular. You ignore all of the generalisations that come before and you descend into the particular. And a good example of that is using chatbots in health. And lots of people say, you can't, you've got to be specifically trained, these are highly specialised, you could never push this to code. But all of those generalised principles occurred before chatbots developed. So we need to delve into what chatbots can do, and then generalise out from that new beginning a world full of chatbots, a world full of AI, machine learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's going to lead on to my, my, my next point because we, we you're focused on transforming health and technology is often seen as a solution to do that. How, how should we be designing technology to transform health?
1: Yeah. We've got to stop fetishizing it. There's an absolute fetish for technology. And they, people believe that technology will solve so much of healthcare, but you can have great tech grafted into a crap system. That's a crap outcome and patient experience. And our systems aren't ready for the technology that, that's way ahead. We've developed something called saluto technical and the saluto technical approach really marries that salutogenic design principles with new technology. So that's where whatever you design is it more meaningful for the individual? Does it also respect the ecosystem? And I'll give you an example. There's mattresses now that can m- measure your heart rate. And if your heart rate changes, they can send an MS- SMS off to family. That's cool. It won't be going to the GP because he or she's never going to look no. at it. Yeah. So to family, and then family can respond. Yes. But the tech is beautiful. But if your chihuahua hops on the bed, <laughs> you're going to be tacky cutter and your family's going to get an SMS <laughs> saying, hell, what's going on? What's this the chihuahua?
0: So I get excited by these things
1: and then I, I think about the practicality. That's right. It, yeah. So they for people developed in isolation who don't have yes. dogs. Yes. Also, they don't have partners. So if granddad or grandma decide to uh, bring home someone to entertain one evening, yeah. And they're having sex and they're going to get you're going to get an sms saying the heart rates are regular right yeah so what they haven't done is had a real human perspective actually they haven't had a life perspective of what it's like to live in somebody's house and when you introduce technology into a house it changes the relationships so what we think is that saluto technical approach is really mindful of the human really mindful of the ecosystem so I wouldn't put any tech that monitors anything into someone's house unless it has a, a has a purpose for health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we are so close to data, so far from the truth.
0: Right. Yes.
1: So I can have everything about you, knowing about you, but, there's, but then you're isolated and lonely. So we know you're using the fridge, so you're eating, you're drinking, your heart rate's regular, but you're not speaking, for example, because you've got no friends. Yeah. And you're 84 and your life is miserable. So are the other sorts of things we try and provoke the sector to, to do better so that you don't design beautifully useless.
0: The The concept of, of so close to data and so far from truth, that's, that's almost like this big, you know, mind-blowing moment from my side. I'm extremely curious about that. We're collecting all this data and so much value is placed on data. Like thinking from a a health company or a vendor's perspective it's all about the data play at the moment how are we going to extract more data value from this data or or collect more data Mm -hmm. what do we do with it all Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it sounds like we're not
1: doing uh, enough or the right thing you've got ecosystems health models of care that are really impermeable to it so for example at home, let's say with your grandparents, if we put tech in the house, it's giving us a lot of information. Some of it's incredibly useful. But it, it meets a model of care that's resistant and hasn't transformed itself. So that data doesn't go to the community nurses. It doesn't go to the care workers. So it's all the responsibilities put back on families to manage that data. When you've got data about your grandparents' house and their activity, then you've you've changed the power dynamic. How much of that do you share? When you see that they've been on watching TV all day and done no exercise, and yet your mother phones them and 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 she says, "Hey, they're fine. They've had a great day. They've been doing lots of things." And you see the data, and they've been on the yeah. on the couch all day. Yeah. You're changing family dynamics, and that's not addressed in the uh, the technology that that is going into people's homes. So first of all, it it pushes more responsibility to families. It also meets a care system that doesn't know what to do with it because it hasn't changed its model of care. There's no tech prescriptions. So if you came to see me with ca- uh, congestive heart failure, I don't prescribe for you a range of uh, Bluetoothed uh, blood pressure machine, scales, some apps, whatever it is, some, some sensors in the house. None of that goes out with you as the first line. What we do is send a community nurse out to you. So you've got this in, in this model of care that just doesn't hasn't caught up with what the, the possibilities, it hasn't transformed itself. So there's, there's, there's that. We're collecting a lot of data. Now, normally in a hospital, a clinician will decide, and if you like, prescribe or dictate when, what data should be collected, collected when. So, for example, four-hourly, two-hourly, 15-minute obs. You know, we, We're used to doing obs, observations within, within a particular context. When you put a whole lot of data in people's homes and make them all smart and connected on their person but also in their environment, there's no way of turning that up and down. So I can imagine getting to a stage where people are palliative, people are dying and you're still recording heart rate and doing all this other stuff, that it doesn't matter anymore. And that's where you can be so close to data so far from the truth.
0: Wow, that's pretty great. I mean, the, the, it, it changes then, you know, how technology is developed, how it's solving problems. Then what's the, you know, you, you've, we've got so many tech vendors in Australia and growing globe, everyone trying to solve problems in healthcare. Um, and, and at least in Australia, then, well, you know, the it, it hasn't caught up yet. Um, and, and a lot of them are backed by private equity or backed by anyone that, that is looking for a return on their investment. What do you, what are they do until then? I guess that's, I, you know, do, do they just keep developing and hope for the best? I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's
1: a marathon. It's a marathon journey. <clears throat> Lots of people in, in uh, tech vendors and startups in healthcare, I think they jump in because they, they can see it. Yeah. But then they meet a system that can't see it yeah. because there's lenses and I would dare say cataracts in the way <laughs> of seeing a future. Yeah. So I think there's two things there is the, the respect for the ecosystem and understanding the maturity of the ecosystem yeah. and almost benchmarking the organizations you're working with, to understand their maturity. Yep. One thing a lot of startups come to me and say is, hey, we thought we could just deploy and go. Yep. But three months later, we're still training staff. We're, we're, we're doing the training, I'm doing the videos, I'm doing the PDF. I've gotta go there in person, what Correct. are you talking about? Correct, <laughs> And that's because they haven't understood the digital maturity yeah. of that organization. And Cisco do a great maturity scaling.
0: Okay.
1: We can benchmark, and I would encourage startups, when they go and, and they get their customer, before the high fives and the beers, mm. Benchmark them on their digital maturity. Mm. Go to Cisco's website, find it out and, and see about benchmarking because you'll get a sense of how much more you're going to do because you're most likely going to have to recruit a project manager to help with the integration of the technology. I rolled out virtual reality in a major, major hospital five years ago and if I did not constantly manage those devices, they would always end up out of battery in the cupboard. So when we walk away, our technology can completely fall over. The one thing also is really work on user experience because clinicians often will will have different ways of working and so it's always worth spending time on the UX of it. But understand that from a procurement point of view, hospitals don't pay for UX. If you're a major hospital and you're purchasing a whole lot of tech, you're you're going for the cheapest. You're not going for the one that, clinicians love the most yeah. because the UX is the best. Yeah. So that's also about a, a UX maturity within the sector. So it's an absolute hard slog. You can either run away now, which I encourage you, just run away and, and go and work somewhere else because <laughs> it, it's hell on earth. It's a blood sport. Or if you're going <laughs> to hang in, or hang in there and watch Game of Thrones and House <laughs> of Cards as professional development because all of those skill sets will come in handy. <laughs> nice one, nice one.
0: No, but that's so true about that about onboarding and um, – uh, UX. I mean, it's just just two areas of such pain that nine times out of ten, that's where I see most health tech or any tech really, but predominantly health tech would fall. Over. I, I was reading your bio as c- complete kind of left field. You, you worked with Mother Teresa.
1: Correct. So, is it really? <laughs>
0: Like the mother trees. Not the not mother trees. Okay,
1: yeah. I, when I was nineteen, I was studying design in Sydney, and uh, the Somalian famine was happening. So I'd sort of finished design school and then head home, and all these starving people were on TV, and I was nineteen, so it had rather an impact. Mm. And for some, I was in a bookshop, and I saw this nun on the cover of this book. Anyway, I brought it, I read it, and I wrote her a letter at nineteen. She wrote back to me and said, "Come and work with me." So I brought a one-way ticket to Calcutta and started working with her in the Home for the Dying. And also there was a whole range of stuff like orphanages and soup kitchens and medical dispensaries, a whole range of things. I then uh, went to Mexico into Tijuana and lived in the slums in Tijuana and worked with her there. And we ran a soup kitchen and a feeding disp- like food dispensary uh, where we had lots of great benefactors in the US that would donate a lot of food. And we were supporting hundreds and hundreds of families per week in, in that environment. So she taught me a lot about what's very practical. But she also taught me a valuable lesson that she actually made a mistake. She made the mistake of using the poor people as the raw materials for her expression and her philosophy on life. Hmm. She robbed them of autonomy Hmm. because she needed them to be poor and grateful because that fitted into her worldview. And I think that's – I've always taken that away with me, that Hmm. wherever I work with marginalised people, Hmm. that the most ethical thing to do is provide choice and lots of quality choice. But Mother Teresa didn't provide quality choice. It was either curl up and die in one of her homes with minimal medications Certainly no pain relief because of the belief that suffering is somehow worthy in the Christian, the Christian philosophy. So therefore she robbed them of choice. And I dare say that's unethical.
0: Sure. Sure. Wow. And to go through that at, at, you know, 19, 20 years of age, like to go through that learning experience. not
1: great. So four and a half years later, came back to Australia and uh, and it was a great formation. I mean. Plenty of practical things just to start. So, for example, I run aircon clubs. So when it's hot in Melbourne, then we open up our home to older people in our suburbs so they can come and spend time with our air conditioning. And we have solar panels, so it works well. Cool. What it does is simply it reduces heat exhaustion for those people that wouldn't turn on the air con because they have limited pensions and they're also really concerned about electricity prices. So when I ran the first aircon club, somebody brought a rabbit because they needed a rabbit cooled in the heat. <laughs> And <laughs> so from a Mother Teresa perspective, you're like, you just start, you start small. Like yeah. the micro ambition of her, where she just started, picked up a poor person that was um, dying on the street, found a house to store them so they could at least die with some dignity. And off she went. Mm-hmm. And I think she knows scale, scale up better than most startups because I think she was in like 160 countries by the end of it. But what she did, she scaled up that Calcutta model everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in tier one, I remember writing a letter saying, you can't take your model from Calcutta and introduce it all over the world when they are surrounded by medicines that could support them. These people shouldn't be dying because you should be giving them antibiotics Mm. or taking them to a hospital sooner. And that's where I came unstuck with Mother Teresa.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So what does, as we're winding to the end of this conversation then, looking to the future, say we we nail it, Matu, what does healthcare look like in in
1: five or ten years? If we nail it, it will be radically democratic. Great. And it will include the third sector. And the third sector is rotary. It is schools. It is volunteers. It is corporates. It is unexpected people involved, and that includes people like Combank Australia, uh, Australia Post, so that they have a legitimate place at the table along with clinicians. So if you had stage four colon cancer that part of your support team would include the community. And that would be digitally enabled so that there are platforms that all of the tech is just a tool for connection. So you would be well connected and it would be really meaningful for you. You'd enter a system that would not traumatise you. Sanctuary trauma is what happens when you go into healthcare and they're meant to look after you and they don't. You get traumatised. If we nail it, that won't be there and it's more than just soft furnishing and lighting and some leafery. It's about a whole system transformation that's very, very deeply focused on the individual and their experience. But that's scaled up so it can do it, deliver it for one person, but deliver it for 10. And in that it's so ingrained in the model that it can do it a hun- for 100 people every single day. And that's where we need to I- evolve. And it is organic. It's not just structures getting different parts right and then sticking them together. Yes. Healthcare's organic, as we are, and it should be relational. I think there'll be a much greater focus on relational health. So when I see you as a patient, I'll be asking, talk to me about your relationships. Because if I spend all this time fixing your knee, fixing your diabetes, and then I discharge you out into the community, I want a return on investment. And that only works if you've got really healthy relationships. So I see a much stronger swing to to relationships and then enabling those around you to support you and the tech just enables that and I think with tech the the best way to think about it is we're the artists and the tech is the brush and we're painting great futures for ourselves but that we, we paint what we desire we, we code what we desire and so the tech never runs away and then we can avoid this ridiculous malignant prophecy around technology and what it will do in healthcare yeah. in regards to everyone's losing their jobs we'll have these stupid robots saying hello to us <laughs> stuff like that you know it's yeah. it's You know, the future will be far more organically evolving Mm. and we will never, ever make it. It will be constantly Mm. evolving. Mm. And that's the beauty of it. And I think that's why a lot of people stay in healthcare because of the turbulence and the mess of it all and also the brilliant outcomes. What we want is to reduce that heroic effort of clinicians who stay over time. Mm. There are people now who will stay, so it's 3.30 now, Mm there'll be clinicians who will do three to four hours overtime to get the job done today. Mm-hmm. We want a healthcare system where they don't have to do that. Mm. And if tech helps, great
0: the challenge i think as well from what you were saying you're talking about starting small and doing something that that's that's meaningful in a a neighborhood like back to those initiatives and the things that are really meaningful in a relationship perspective are are usually one or more quite quite a small a little impact it's then it's then making that scalable is probably where a lot of people get unstuck too because there's all these little pockets of really good stuff Mm -hmm. and if technology can enable that scaling then that's when we start to really hit some big wins so so to close out then how do people find out more about or get involved with some of those initiatives that you're Brilliant. involved with.
1: So if you look up onegoodstreet.com.au, it mm. gives you a, a rundown. Join our Facebook group, One Good Street, mm. and you'll see all the kind of stuff that we do. And some of it is just acknowledging what you already do. So mm. there's nothing new because some of you are out there doing amazing things for older people. You look after a nonna, you do the <laughs> gardening, you do all this stuff already. Yeah. Australia does this in a flood, in a fire, and for a fun run. Mm. We're just designing ways to do it more regularly. Mm. And Australia needs help in scaffolding that, both ways. Patients, I mean, we as Australians find it difficult to ask for help, which is why we end up with lots of lasagnas in our fridge when we're <laughs> unwell. And we're like, can someone just change the <laughs> sheets on my bed because <laughs> I've broken my shoulder? Oh, so, yeah. so we've got to scaffold it. And so, uh, yes, so join One Good Street and check out the Health Transformation Lab, uh, our website. We've got, it's, it's, it's fresh, it's, it's very radical. I, when I look at it, I've been in design for quite some time and and normally you get this double diamond kind of shape of exploratory iteration, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> prototyping. We're way off script. Yeah. So what I would say, if you're a, a clinician or a designer or somebody where you never fit it in because of the way you thought, yeah. then we're going to be a new home.
0: Wow, that's awesome. There's so much to follow up on. It's been, it's been a fascinating chat, Matthew, and I and I look forward to having many more like that in the future. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go do some stuff on our socials and website, share it with some people and give us a nice review and a five-star rating because it all helps to spread the word and get people talking. Until next time, I'm out of here.